Good morning, church. Let's go to our Bibles, John chapter 19, verse 31. John 19, starting in verse 31, and we'll read through to the end of the chapter. It goes like this. It says, Therefore, because it was the preparation day, that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, and that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with, his, with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you may believe. For these things were done, that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, They shall look on him whom they pierced. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified there was a garden and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews preparation day for the tomb was nearby. Jesus we ask for your blessing as we consider your burial. Uh, we ask that we would be uh, a blessed people that, uh, that are given insight into uh, a dark mystery, uh, a somber mystery, but I pray that, that in understanding the tomb and the burial and the care that was given to your body, um, that we would be spurred on and that we would also want to care for your body in this same way. And also, God, that we would see the extent to which our sins have been removed from us. Uh, let this element of the gospel be taught clearly today by my lips in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So at this point, Jesus has, has said his final words. He said, it is finished in the last verse we covered last week, verse 30. He has laid down his life just as he said he would. He told his disciples that greater love has no man than this and that he laid down his life for his friends. And now Jesus has done exactly that. He has laid down his life for his friends and his enemies. He has made it clear that no one takes his life from him, but he lays it down of his own accord. And in verse 30, he said, uh, we saw Jesus do exactly that. He says that he gave up his spirit, or in the King James, gave up the ghost. Uh, Jesus knew when he was done. Not because he just couldn't go on living anymore, or because he was too weak, though we uh, you know, recognize readily that, that his energy had been taken from him, that he was exhausted. Uh, but crucifixion was actually designed to last and last. It could go on for days. Jesus gave up his spirit when he knew that the sins of the world had been judged and paid for. So for the rest of the chapter into, in this text and into the next chapter, Jesus is dead. Now this year before Easter, I was doing some reading and praying and saw that uh, Holy Saturday, the day before Easter, is traditionally a time for Christians to be quiet and still and consider what would the world be like without 
Jesus? And we're to allow that question to kind of settle into our hearts in expectation of resurrection, of course, to make the celebration that much greater. But And you might be able to get a glimpse of what that world is like because you remember what your life was like without Jesus. It's a sobering reality, but our devotional meditations are nothing like the John, like what John the Apostle was experiencing at this moment. He was there, and he watched his best friend die. He watched his Lord die, and he had to be there with the mother of Jesus, watching her grief, ministering to her. And then even the lifeless body is subjected to further abuses, but these wounds, and the wounds that are not inflicted, matter a great deal in John describes uh, both of those things. So let's go to the cross. Let's go to the cross and see what there is to see. Um, verse 31, again, we'll read the um, all the way through 37 again. It says, Therefore, because it was the preparation day, that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, for that, so that you may believe. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled, not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. Uh, this is another one of the many you know, dark ironies of the Passion. In chapter 18, we read that the Jewish leaders were unwilling to go, to even step foot in Gentile territory uh, because Pilate, being a Gentile, would have, uh, you know, had that, that, that area was defiled uh, for them. They would have been defiled on the Passover. Lying is fine. Murder is fine. Blasphemy is totally fine. But there are lines that these religious people simply can't cross. So they demand that the bodies be removed for their holy day. They don't want to have to think about the evils that they had done. Crucifixion is defiling. The Sabbath was a holy day, especially this year because the Passover and, and um, Fe Feast of First Fruits is coming up. So every Sabbath is holy, but this Sabbath was especially holy. It was a high Sabbath. So in order to speed up the process of death, the legs of the crucified would be broken. Now, because of the position the victims were in on their crosses, without the ability to use their legs to push themselves up to get a breath, they would actually suffocate to death. Jesus, however, is already dead, and so they do not break his legs, but they absolutely have to be sure, without a shadow of a doubt, that Jesus was really, truly dead. Now, for a relatively short amount of time, uh, a very small number of skeptics with axes to grind have put forth the theory that Jesus didn't really die. Now, this is not actually a position that is held by anyone in scholarship or any intellectually honest skeptic anymore, so I don't have to deal with it a whole lot. Um, don't pretend like this is the strongest argument that's going to come against your faith. But for a time, there were those who would hold to the swoon theory uh, in which Jesus just passed out and then revived in the cool, comfy, dark tomb. Uh, verse 34 renders that theory completely impossible. The soldier pierces the side of Jesus in order to rupture his heart to absolutely make sure, beyond the shadow of a doubt, that he was really and truly dead and could not live. The presence of water or what appeared to be water, shows that Christ's heart 
had already essentially been broken or ruptured. The piercing of the side was an on-the-spot autopsy revealing the cause of death. The heart had burst. He was bleeding out. He was um, he was hemorrhaging, and then this this sack of fluid is there to preserve the 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 organ for as long as it it could be uh, preserved. This could be one of the reasons why Jesus's some of Jesus's last words were "I thirst." When when you're bleeding out, when you're hemorrhaging, there's an extreme thirst that comes, and Jesus knew that he was dying, that the life was draining out from him. There is an idea that is prominent in the Old Covenant where both blood and water were often used in the priestly service of atoning for and cleansing of sin. Charles Spurgeon writes, Take all the types of the Old Testament together and you will gather this, that the purification of sin was typically set forth by blood and water. Blood was uh, conspicuous always. You have no remission of sin without it, but water was exceedingly prominent also. End quote. In the great hymn, Rock of Ages, we sing, Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be of sin, the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. There's a, another symbol that has been found in all of this. Christ is fulfilling his role as the new and better Adam. Adam also had his side opened. In order to create Eve, his bride, Jesus here, has his side open and blood and water flows out. And what is done at this event is, is um, he is creating his bride, the church. We are cleansed by the blood of Christ. The church is created on the foundation of the death of Christ, the blood of Christ. John is putting more references to himself at, in at this point, telling his audience, I was there, I saw him die. And his purpose, his hope in sharing these details is that you may have faith. His testimony is true and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. That's what he writes. Seeing that Jesus has died is something that spurs us on to believe. Seeing Jesus on the cross is something that gives faith. And of, of course, the book doesn't end here. We're going to go to the resurrection and we celebrate Easter every year and we're, we're going to study John chapter 22 and see the empty tomb. But even though the empty tomb is the miraculous part, it has been the cross since the church's origin, since Paul's day, that the cross is where we glory. The symbol of the cross has become the symbol of Christianity and has, has been so ever since the church's origins. So John says, I saw him on the cross. Seeing Jesus on the cross is something that gives us faith. We went over this last week a little bit, but I cannot uh, let it slide again. It cannot be forgotten that God's love is demonstrated here. Romans 5 says, God demonstrated his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It is the death of Christ, Christ on the cross, breathing his last, that gives us faith and shows us love. But the other thing that John is saying here, he says, so, you, so that you may believe, is again the fulfillment of ancient prophecies. He says, so that you may believe, I'm going to include uh, the prophecies that were made hundreds, a thousand even years before Christ, so that you can see that this wasn't an accident, that this wasn't just a chance. Um, 
that, that Jesus is fulfilling ancient prophecies. He saw the Old Testament. John saw the Old Testament fulfilled before his very eyes, even in this detail of the Roman soldiers not breaking the bones of Jesus. There's no reason for them not to. They weren't squeamish. In fact, they were, they were under the authority uh, of their, their bosses, you know, to make sure everybody was dead. Breaking the legs would have been customary. It would have been a normal thing, but they didn't. It's unusual. We see that they were under the authority of one greater and were, fulfill, were fulfilling prophecies unwittingly. This prophecy that none of his bones will be broken, this is from Psalm 34, verse 20. It says he guards all his bones, not one of them is broken. Now this is a fulfillment also of Christ's role as a Passover lamb. In Exodus 12, the laws of the Passover are given and while the whole Passover lamb was to be consumed completely by those who offered it, they were not to break a single bone. Christ is our Passover lamb. The second Old Testament prophecy that John brings up is from Zechariah 12, verse 10. It says, They will look on him whom they have pierced. The wound in his side would be seen and even touched by Thomas just a few days later. And this prophecy fulfilled in this passage is also a reminder to us that we must see him crowned in glory. Absolutely. Of course, but we also see him with scars in heaven. In Revelation, John's vision of Revelation, there's glory, there's gold, there's a rainbow, there's a throne, there's everlasting praise, but there is a lamb that appears as one who was slain. The marks of death exist in heaven. The marks are there. We behold the one whom we have pierced, who our sins uh, kept on the cross who our sins brought to the cross. The rest of the prophecies of Zechariah surrounding this one that John mentions, if you read Zechariah 12 and 13, you know, most of them are, are very clearly signs, uh, prophecies of Christ's second coming, which is interesting. And I think the people reading John, the Jews at least reading John would have known that. But here at the end of John's first book, he's dropping hints for the sequel, <laughs> Revelation. But before we get to that Bible study, we have to stay with the crucified body of Jesus. We, we actually need to move from the crucifixion now into the burial of Christ. And it is the burial that we quietly consider on Holy Saturday. And even though today is Sunday, it's still worth considering. This quiet time of stillness between the horrors of the cross and then the glories of the resurrection are no less important for their subtlety. As we move into this next section, I, I, I have to remind you that the gospel includes the burial. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're all aware of that first part, death, of course. We, we, make, it, uh, in, we make part of that part into jewelry, uh, wearing crosses around our necks even. And hopefully we do much more than that, of course, but we spent the last few weeks considering this. And of course, every month we, we celebrate communion. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Resurrection also is something that hopefully all Christians are familiar with and, and something that we consider often. We know that uh, this is the most important part of our, of our faith in that uh, believing God raises, raised Christ from the dead is essential for our hope and future. And if Christ is not raised, our faith is futile or we're still in our sins, 1 Corinthians 15, 17. But the in-between, the death, in between the death and the resurrection of Christ, we have this overlooked and underestimated ingredient of the gospel, and I think it's overlooked and underestimated because it's so quiet. 
Christ's burial is more than a waiting period or a pause between important events. It is an event in its own right. Um, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 3, Paul clearly defines the gospel as this, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. When Christ died, he took all of the sins of humanity on himself. But he didn't just absorb them. He's certainly not carrying all of them around with him today in his glorified body in heaven. In between his death and his resurrection, he deposited sin in the grave. He didn't only take our sins from us, he removed them as far as the east is from the west, Psalm 103, verse 12. That is an infinite distance. In Leviticus chapter 16, you read uh, about the Day of Atonement, when all the sins of all the people, not just individuals, but the nation itself, would be placed on what's called the scapegoat. And in Leviticus 16, verse 21, I'm going to read you this passage. Leviticus 16, 21 says, Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat, and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. Jesus, we know, is the Passover lamb, but he fulfills so much more. He is also our scapegoat. Christ is the scapegoat for mankind, and he bore our iniquities to the wilderness of the grave. The scapegoat would be taken after all the sins of Israel would be put on its head, and it would be taken by a suitable man an honorable, virtuous, trustworthy man into that wilderness. They wouldn't want to have the body, given the body just to anybody. It had to be a suitable man, someone trustworthy. And after Jesus, our scapegoat, took upon himself the sins of the world, God allowed him to be taken to the wilderness of the grave by a suitable man named Joseph. Verse 38. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus. Now, this is a really beautiful story. You've heard me say this before. I didn't make it up. I stole it from someone else. But you can a secret disciple will not stay a secret disciple. Either the, they'll cease being a disciple and keep their secret, or they'll uh, cease being secretive and grow in discipleship. Now, that's what's going to happen with Joseph here. He is the secret, letting the secret out. Now, there's some details here um, and, and others that are left out that we'll get from other Gospels that, that make this man very, very interesting. And, you know, I think he's one of the underestimated characters in the New Testament too often ignored, just like the burial of Christ is part of the Gospel that we often skip over. But we learn right here that he's from out of town. He is Joseph of Arimathea, not Joseph of Jerusalem. That's not unusual in and of itself. Jesus is not from Jerusalem either, but it's unusual that his tomb is not in his hometown. His tomb, and we learn from the other Gospels that the tomb mentioned here is Joseph's tomb. This is, this is uh, not his family tomb. So even though his family is from Arimathea, he is not planning on being buried there in the family plot, so to speak. And that would be unusual in those days. Tombs weren't for individuals, actually. They were family affairs. One tomb may be the resting place for generations of the same family. Uh, there was a shelf for the body, and once it decomposed, the bones would be swept up and put into an ossuary, a bone box, 
and room was made for the next occupant, and they would lay on the shelf there. Joseph, a rich man from Arimathea, very likely made a conscious decision that he was not going to be buried in his family tomb, but instead in Jerusalem. We know, actually, that he did make this decision because the tomb that he put Jesus into, according to verse 41, was new. No one had ever been buried there before. So it had been carved out of the stone for the specific purpose of Joseph and his descendants. Now, why would he do this? Because it's closer to his work. You know, we know that he's a member of the Sanhedrin. He has to work in Jerusalem, so he might as well just be buried there, too. A lot of people get close to being buried at work. Uh, but Luke, Luke offers some insight here that John leaves out. And in Luke 23, verse, first, verse 51, it says that Joseph was also waiting for the kingdom of God. Uh, this has something to do with the reason his tomb was in Jerusalem. I think he recognized Psalm 48, verse 2. Psalm 48, verse 2 says that Jerusalem is the city of the great king. And he could have understood from the prophets that it would be in Jerusalem from which the Christ, Christ the king would rule the world. Understanding this and, and the resurrection prophecies of Daniel chapter 12. Daniel 12 too says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Joseph of Arimathea knew that if he died before the kingdom of God was established on earth, he certainly wanted to be one of the first ones to see it after the resurrection. It also says there in verse 38 that he was a secret disciple for fear of the Jews. He's not going to be a secret disciple for much longer. This act of his in taking the body of a condemned criminal is his public confession. He is making a decision, and as a man who is looking forward to the kingdom of God, he had come to the place at this point in time to realize that there could be no better king than the one who had just been crucified. Now think about that for a second. Think about this. Now Joseph, as a member of the Sanhedrin, he was a prominent member of the council, says in Luke, he would have seen Jesus teaching, preaching. He would have possibly even been, you know, part of the, the final trial there. Um, we know that he was not consenting to his death, neither was Nicodemus. But we know that the resurrection is coming. We know that without the resurrection, Christians are a pitiful bunch. We know that Jesus is a living king. Joseph it seems Joseph only knew that Jesus was good. And that was enough for him to lay down his life, to pick up his cross, so to speak, and follow his crucified Lord. This is why I find Joseph to be such an underappreciated saint. Because his faith at this point, is dedicate, his dedication is beyond the faith of many who know of resurrection. And this fact that he was looking for the kingdom of God is very interesting. And his enthusiasm when it came to God establishing an earthly kingdom on this planet could be what pushed him out of the closet, so to speak, from secret disciple to public witness. The Jews wanted more than anything the kingdom of God that is described in the book of Daniel. And Joseph of Arimathea was no different. As you study Daniel, you'll see that the Messiah is a conquering king, right? He's the, um, the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. And he's given, in Daniel chapter 7, uh, he's given dominion and glory and a kingdom and all peoples and nations should serve him. And it's an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. This is music to the ears, especially uh, if you're part of the Jewish people that are looking forward to this. Now it says that Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, which means that he heeded the words and the teachings of Rabbi Jesus. The moral and ethical teachings were great and Joseph believed them. 
He was one of the people, along with Nicodemus, that recognized that Jesus was from God. There was something special about him. He doesn't teach like the scribes and the Pharisees, but with authority. He was a prophet for sure, but I don't know that, he, I don't know that it was until Jesus' trial, maybe under the Sanhedrin, that Joseph really got the bigger picture. In Mark chapter 14, we read of the trial before the Supreme Court, of which Joseph was a prominent member. In Mark 14, 61, it says, The high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus is declaring that he is the conquering king of Daniel chapter 7. Even quoting the verse, the results of the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven is that all peoples and nations and languages, languages should serve him. Jesus was telling the high priest and the whole council that there would come a time when all would serve him. Every knee would bow, every tongue would confess. And for Joseph, he says, why wait? Joseph knows that this service is going to start real soon. He'd been waiting for the kingdom of God and here he's, a, he's silently letting his conscience be torn up by the things that are going on around him, the injustice of it all not consenting, but neither opposing. And he sees Jesus say, you know that kingdom you've been waiting for, Joseph? I'm, I'm the king. And I wonder how often we've been seeking something and going hard after something we want, even if it's a good thing. And all the while, Jesus is saying, it's me. It's me that you need. You know, you want peace and you're looking for, but I'm the prince of peace. You want pleasure, but at my right hand, that's where the, there's pleasures forevermore. Psalm 16. Verse 11, you know, are you hungry? What are you really hungry for, though? Because I'm the bread of life, John 6, 35. Do you want direction? I'm the way. Do you want wisdom? I'm the truth. Do you want hope? I'm the resurrection and the life. It doesn't get more hopeful than that. You know, we don't need to settle for less when we could be with Jesus. And Joseph had been looking for a kingdom, but when Christ, before the, his trial, says, I'm the king, Joseph realized he had hoped for a kingdom, but he didn't have a king until now. We don't know where Joseph was during Christ's trial before, the, before Pilate or during the crucifixion. But at some point in time, Joseph of Arimathea rearranges his priorities. In John chapter 12, verse 43, it says that the reason the rulers who believed in Jesus didn't say anything about it, along with their fear of being thrown out of the synagogue, was because they loved the praise of men rather than the praise of God. And that could have been said for Joseph before, perhaps, but that's about to change. Halfway into verse 38, it says that Joseph asked Pilate that he might take the body of Jesus and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus. This doesn't sound like much, but remember chapter 18, the chief priests refused to walk on the same patio as Pilate because they would have been defiled for the Passover. Joseph has no such reservations. Mark, who's not always one for small details in his gospel, he says that Joseph gathered up courage to go to Pilate. This was a big deal. And Mark includes another interesting word when he talks about Joseph. It says that he craved the body of Jesus. So imagine this wealthy politician whose conscience and heart is probably throbbing from the realization that the king he had been waiting for his whole life had just been brutally slaughtered. He's been craving the kingdom and now he, he almost missed the king. In a way, I guess he did. The king's dead. But he gathers up courage, fully realizing his, the loss he's taking, inciting with the convicted heretic. Loss of job, of course, money, prestige, title, inclusion. He marches now into a Gentile court, defiling himself in the minds of the Pharisees of the day and Sadducees, and he begs for the corpse of Jesus. Question, did Joseph of Arimathea do more for the dead king than you would do for a living king? Because he, he laid it all down on the line. 
Joseph sacrificed his life, not literally, but his social life, his business life, for the corpse of a person, hoping to receive, like Hebrews 11 says, a better resurrection. He's living for the next life, not this one. Jesus was not inside that body. The soul of a person doesn't stay cooped up inside a dead body for very long. It was just flesh. Did Joseph sacrifice more for a dead Messiah than you are willing to sacrifice for a living Savior? Jesus was dead. All of, all of us should consider ourselves to be disciples of Christ. That's good. But if you think that in that you've somehow arrived, if you think you stand, take heed lest you fall, because where are Jesus' disciples now? They're scattered. They all forsook him. Simon Peter, who followed at a distance after Jesus' betrayal, was watching Jesus be beaten as he was denying him. And Luke says that when, at, when that, that, that rooster crowed, Jesus looked at him and Peter went out and wept bitterly. That's the disciples right now. After Jesus died, only two disciples were there, Joseph and our new character, Nicodemus. In verse 39, it says, Nicodemus, who at first came by, to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. Verse 40, Then they took the body of Jesus, bound it in strips of linen with spices, as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Nicodemus is another secret disciple who hadn't, hadn't come out yet about Jesus. He, he too is very wealthy, very prominent in, in Jewish leadership. He, Jesus calls him the teacher of Israel in John 3. It seems that he was also a member of the Sanhedrin. He didn't go with Joseph into Pilate, but I'll bet once he saw Joseph take up courage to go ask for the body, he says, I'm in, let's do this. And standing up for Christ doesn't just do something for you, or it doesn't, it's not just a witness to unbelievers. Standing up for Christ strengthens other believers as well. When one person stands up in a dark place, it inspires others to do the same. Now, it's interesting to consider that Nicodemus and Joseph were both silent about their faith for fear of the Jews, and both of them are Jews, each with the power to throw the other out of the synagogue. I wonder what they thought when they were heading up to the cross together with the linen and the aloes, looking at each other and saying, you too? Really? You know, I like to imagine the two of these guys doing ministry together in the early stages of the church. You know, helping with the deacons, feeding widows, and going around serving communion and washing feet. You know, they've been together in this, this fear-filled, power-struggle place, and now, now they're just pouring it all out for Jesus. These two men who had probably been afraid of each other for the past few years are now closer than ever as they meet together at the cross. Last week we talked about John and Mary and how Jesus draws people together closer than family when we gather around the cross. And this is just the way it is. The cross is what we as Christians have in common. This is what unites us. Now let's talk aloes and spices. I, I like to think about this. When Jesus died... He had the sins of the world on him. He had the taste of vinegar, gall in his mouth, pain everywhere. And, and the smell, I would suggest the smell of the expensive ointment from Mary of Bethany. But also, it's been a long night and a long day, the smell of death is present. Now, when he took his first resurrected breath in that tomb, the only thing he smelled was the spices that Nicodemus prepared for him. Myrrh, of course, was one of the gifts that the, the, the wise men gave to baby Jesus. I don't know that many of you have wondered what Jesus smells like today, but if you have, your wonderings can be over. In Psalm 45, verse 8, it says, Speaking of King Jesus, it says, All thy garments smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia. 
I wonder if Nicodemus had this verse in mind when he brought this, these myrrh and aloes to Jesus of Nazareth. Here's something to think about. When Nicodemus died and came face to face with Jesus, did he smell the myrrh and the aloes and the spices just like at the burial? Now look at verse 41. Let's finish up the chapter. It says, Now at the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. Now, of course, this is an uncompleted story. It's not finished, and, and we look forward to Sunday. But while we rightly confess with Christ, it is finished, and rightly sing, Jesus paid it all, we also know that even today we are in between. We are in the already but not yet kingdom of God. We, we long, uh, as long as we are able to pray, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, and long for his coming, then we are in the place where we, we hunger, we crave the body of Jesus, we long for resurrection. And it is good that we dwell here because the doctrine of the burial of Christ has a direct relation to how you live for him. Your sanctification is closely connected to your understanding of the burial of Christ. Joseph had hopes that he would literally be buried with Christ, that when they were raised, he would be with him. You and Paul and myself have a similar hope, having been buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so also we should walk in newness of life. Joseph may or may not have actually been buried in the, in the same tomb. And I tend to think he wasn't. Church history suggests that he actually went to England and preached the gospel there. But his sins were buried in this tomb, and so are yours. When he buried Jesus, he was the faithful man taking the scapegoat with the sins of the whole nation, the whole world on him. And he put away his own sins. Acknowledging that it was our sins that were on Christ, our scapegoat, as he entered the tomb, we can reckon ourselves to be dead indeed to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Joseph was no longer a secret disciple. You shouldn't be either. You should pray with the disciples in Acts 4, 29, Lord, grant to your servants that with all boldness we may speak your word. Joseph lived his life with the hope of the coming of the kingdom of God. So should you. As Titus 2.13 says, be looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Joseph traded the praise of men for the praise of God. So should you. Joseph's sins were placed on Christ and then buried. So were yours. The result is new life in Christ. Let's pray for that. Jesus, we ask um, that we would be like Joseph in these ways. We thank you that we are like him and that his sins, like ours, were dealt with by Christ on the cross, buried in the tomb, removed as far as the east is from the west. Lord, we delight in your word and we are humbled by it. We pray that it would have its full effect in developing your church into the body that it needs to be growing into the full in the fullness of the stature of Christ, who is our head. Bless us, bless us, bless us. In Jesus' name, amen.